Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Well, Lord, thank you um, for your word. Thank you especially for the Passover, displaying your deliverance, your strength, your goodness, and setting up for us a pattern of worship in which we can participate in your kingdom in a special way. Lord, I ask you to help me as I preach, and each one of us, Lord, that are longing for you would be stoked. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're familiar with the document that um, we have on our website about our vision and our core values, one of our core values is that we are formed through a blending of three strands that are woven into one strong cord, and those are the scriptures, they're all S's, the scriptures, the spirit of God, and the sacraments. And this is an important understanding because today we're going to be picking up the idea of identity and belonging through ritual. We're looking at the Passover, uh, a ritual that became an annual feast and still to this day is a feast for the Jews. And in worship, we are are gradually being transformed. I've come to find personally as somebody uh, who came into Anglicanism from outside of it that the prayer book has this way of working on you to gradually change you and also change your desires of what you want in worship and what you expect in worship. It's insidious almost. If you've ever taken a season away from a liturgical church and been without the sacraments on a regular basis and then come back, it's, it's a really powerful experience because that form, that shape is already there in you. You've been formed into a people of God. And we long for membership in something bigger than us. We long for belonging. We were made for belonging, actually. And life offers us lots of different tribes, if you will, that we can belong to. Pick whatever hobby or interest you have, and there are various tribes within that. I have long been a bike rider, a cyclist, and in the cyclist community, there's the skinny spandex and skinny tires and light expensive bikes tribe. There's the beach cruiser tribe. There's the mountain bikers tribe. I'm more of the long distance touring on a heavy slow bike tribe, but there are all these different tribes out there. And figuring out where you belong is kind of an important thing. I wonder which tribes you belong to. Where is your belonging found? And I wonder in those tribes, is there hostility because of the divisions? As Paul calls it, a dividing wall of hostility referring to something else. But is there tension because people don't fit together. So, um, what, are your, what are your tribes? And I want to suggest to us that it is possible for us to participate in something that even predates you. When we're thinking about places of belonging, it's possible for us to have a sense of belonging in something that happened a long time ago. Since it's NFL season, and I'm originally from Pittsburgh, I will share something that you, you don't have a choice if you're from Pittsburgh. To be, you have to be a Steelers fan, and you are reminded regularly of how many Super Bowl rings they have, and it's funny, there is a, a particular play that every kid reenacts in the front yard with his friends in the football, and it's from a championship game, not a Super Bowl game, but it's the, the famous Franco Harris catch of the so-called Immaculate Reception which is a play on words from a Catholic dogma, the Catholic teaching of an immaculate conception. But in a playoff game, Terry Bradshaw throws a football, it hits another player, it's deflected, it's almost on the ground, and a rookie, Franco Harris, catches it like an inch off the ground and runs it back for 60 yards for a touchdown. Now, I'm not a huge football fan, but I'm from Pittsburgh, and so every 
you go through the airport in Pittsburgh, there's literally a life-size statue of that play with him catching the ball. <laughs> Seriously. And, and we feel like that was our play. We reenacted it as kids. Um, we see the statue. We've, now we can go on YouTube and watch it. And the funny thing is, it happened two years before I was born. <laughs> Literally, 1972. I was born in 74. It happened in 72. And, but we, we, we have a way of taking ownership of something that transcends time. I'll take it out of the NFL. We can think of like the American Revolution as we dumped the tea into the Boston Harbor and stuck it to the Brits and the Redcoats, and we won the revolution. Well, that, you know, centuries before us. But there's a corporate kind of belonging that comes from that. And, and it, it happens in lots of different places. I tell our newcomers at our newcomers events that I wasn't there at Grace Episcopal when this congregation left the prior denomination. I got here when we were in the high school with six months left of setting up the chairs as this property was being completed. And I, but I say, I hope that this story will become your story, that we left a denomination that was unfaithful to the gospel and were willing to take on a huge mortgage to be faithful to the Word of God when the, the other denomination nationally was embracing social changes that were compromising the gospel. This is a church that stands on faith faith in God's Word. I hope that will become your story, and you'll say, we left, even if you weren't there. See, that idea of corporate belonging and ownership in something like that, it forms you. It can do a lot of good, actually. It can unite a people. Now, there's a real mystery in how that works, how some things can transcend time, and we can be part of something that predates us. But today's text is picking up on that. We're in the the final of the ten plagues. This is the climactic moment where God is going to finally break Pharaoh. Actually, he'll once more uh, chase them into the Red Sea, and we'll see that next week. But this is the 10th of 10 plagues. It's the big moment. It's the death of the firstborn son. And again, I'm preaching not on just the 13 verses we read, but chapters 11, 12, and 13, because we have to pick up the whole flow of what's happening in narrative like this. I do want to encourage you to read it on your own. But this is the Lord passing through the land of Egypt, and he is passing over the houses that have the blood of the sacrificed lamb on their doorposts, which um, is where we get the name Passover for this feast. In verse 12 of what we did read, it says, uh, this is God speaking to Moses, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Interestingly enough, it's also a sign for God. When he sees the blood, here's a faithful house, pass over that one. So it's a sign for God to know to pass over that one, but it's a sign for you, which is, I'm going to, I'll elaborate on that in a second. And where I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is, this is justice. You know, the Pharaoh, both this one and the one that was in power when, when Moses was born, were throwing babies into the Nile. They were, they were killing the firstborn and the second. They were killing all the males or trying to. This is a, a type of justice for that. But as it says in this passage, God is also bringing judgment against the gods that are worshipped in Egypt and against all that idolatry. There's judgment coming here. And Right away, you might ask, why not just spare the land of Goshen like you did in all the other plagues? 
The hail didn't hit them. The darkness didn't fall in the land of Goshen. Something different is going on here. And I think there are really two things at play. One is God is now expecting a faith response on the part of the people that he's delivering. Now, it's not hard. He's not saying you have, you have to do this hard thing. I'm doing the heavy lifting, God says. I want you, though, to express your faith as being part of this covenant people by putting the blood on the doorposts and observing this Passover. And then the, the second thing is that we learn in chapter 13 that God sees the firstborn of Israel as belonging to him in a special way. Obviously, everything belongs to God, but something about the firstborn belongs to God in a special way, and he wants it to be given back to him through a sacrifice, through death, to be sacrificed. Now, thankfully, he makes a substitute and starts to introduce something that will become very important throughout Israel's worship and even to the cross, a substitute for that firstborn that belongs to God. Instead of sacrificing in fire, a substitute, a a lamb can be provided to redeem that firstborn. But on this night, the Egyptians aren't going to do that, and judgment is going to fall upon them. God is going to kill all the firstborn in those households on this night, unless the substitute is provided. So we're learning something here about substitutionary atonement, a a theological idea that that gets developed later. We see that God substitutes a lamb, or, or you can redeem a person with a lamb. He then provides the Levites, which is an entire tribe, as a substitute uh, for those firstborn. And then even to Jesus' day, when he is born, he's presented at the temple according to this custom. And it, there is in Leviticus a concession for poor people. If you can't afford a lamb, you can bring uh, two turtle doves. There's, uh, there's a, um, a concession in there for people that are poor, which is what his parents bring when they present him in the temple. So this practice that's set up here goes all the way through until the days of Jesus. Very important to understand that. Now, this is hard to read. This is a hard narrative to read because it's broken up with all this liturgical language. This is not written for narrative climactic excitement. You would think that everything has been building, 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 and now it would be about how God smites the Egyptians and how he finally displays his ultimate power. But it starts right out and says, this month shall be to you the beginning of months. So right away, God tells Moses, I'm going to establish a new pattern of worship. It it makes it hard to read because there's all this stuff in there about how you're going to pass it on to the generations, and you're going to eat the Passover meal in great haste with your staff in hand, dressed and ready to go, but then you're going to have a a week-long festival of the unleavened bread. Well, that doesn't make sense when you're fleeing from the Egyptians. It does make sense when you're an established people and you are now worshiping God who brings deliverance and remembering this event with a week-long festival of the unleavened bread as well as the Passover. They, they, got, they, they tend to be referred to together. The Passover means the Passover night and the lamb and the meal and then a week of unleavened bread and cleaning the yeast out of the houses in preparation for it. And there's all this stuff that is here. The reason, remember when I said that the Exodus is about worship on week one when we set up this, this whole sermon series? We're seeing what that means. It is this text, this section of the text is establishing a way for the people to worship God. And it's not written for um, it's the reader's pleasure, per se, with the big climactic moment and then, and then the rest of the story playing out. No, it's set up to establish patterns of worship, and in, in particular, for generations, how you're going to do this 
so that the kids will say, why do you do this this way? And then you're going to tell them the story of how God delivered. It's meant for worship, and worship which will form. It forms us. And this will point ahead to something that Christ does. Now, I love it when the scriptures help us make the connection of how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. And this couldn't be clearer. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the festival. He makes the connection for us very clearly. In fact, in the upper room, Jesus made the connection very clearly for his disciples. All three of the synoptics show that Jesus is picking up the Passover theme, and John even shows it a day earlier. People see it as a discrepancy, but John is emphasizing this truth. In the upper room, Jesus did not do the full Passover. There was no lamb there, at least on the table. There was wine and bread, and there was a lot of stuff. And then the next day, Good Friday, when the, when the lambs were actually being slaughtered for the, for the Jews to do Passover, the Lamb of God himself was being slaughtered on the cross. And John intentionally points that out. We saw how the land got dark, just like one of the prior plagues. In fact, they break the knees of the thieves on both sides of the cross who are still alive, but Jesus is already dead. And John makes a point of pointing out that they did not break a single bone of his body, which is part of the stipulation for the Passover. When you prepare your lamb for this Passover, don't break any of the bones. It's fulfilled in Christ. We see that explicitly. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Now, there are a bunch of things that are happening in, in this moment for ancient Israel and then also for the church. For instance, they're being delivered from slavery in Egypt. And we are being delivered from slavery to evil. It's interesting in the Eucharistic prayer, we talk about how Jesus broke the bonds of death and trampled hell and Satan under his feet. It's not just about Egypt. It's actually about bigger principalities and power. It's about trampling evil, both personified and general evil. Jesus conquered that on the cross. So there's a deliverance from a type of slavery. And then there's blood atonement here being introduced as well for the idolatry, both of the Egyptians, but also God's people, the, the, the Israelites, were caught up in that idolatry. And we'll see in the coming weeks how it's a trip, it's a stumbling block for them over and over and over again how things were in Egypt. And by the time we get to the golden calf, we're going to see just how much they need their guilt to be dealt with. Not just Egypt, the Israelites as well, and frankly, us as well. 400 years of participating in the ways of Egypt has shaped in a bad way the people of God, and now they're being reformed. And the Passover is a big um, way that that happens. It also forms a new nation. This was you know, 600,000 men, it says, plus women and children, these were a bunch of disparate slaves with, of an ethnic background, and they are being formed into the nation of Israel in this event. When they leave Egypt, they become a new people. He is establishing a new thing. And frankly, on the cross, when Jesus died for us and then rose, he established a new thing. It's, you're you're a, a new entity. In fact, Paul will say he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, even between the Gentiles and the Jews, that in Christ there is one new humanity, and all who are in Christ belong to it. So when we think about tribes and participation, this is the tribe of all tribes, to be part of the church, the people of God. And anybody can be part of it, and it can unite anyone, no matter how disparate their backgrounds are. There is unity found at the cross. A new people has been formed. And then finally, um, 
worship formation through the Passover tradition. They are given these traditions to describe how God rescued out of slavery, how he formed a people, and it's very specific in here how this is supposed to be done for the generations over and over again. In fact, you're going you're gonna to change your very calendar, people of God. You're going to do this Passover will be the, the start of your year, the first month of your year. He changed how they reckon uh, for time. The same thing the church did. Instead of the Sabbath being a Saturday, because of the cross and resurrection and Christ our Passover being sacrificed, they shifted the Lord's day from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, Easter day. Sunday now has become for the church the Sabbath day. And the, the liturgical church, at least, recognizes a calendar that doesn't start January 1st. It starts on Advent. So we back up four weeks before Christmas. The, the calendar ends this year at the end of November. Advent starts November, I think it's 27th this year. And that's where our liturgical calendar starts. So we tell the story of salvation in Christ annually as a way to shape us as a people. Through worship, we are being formed. Now, obviously, Anglican liturgy makes a big deal of word and sacrament. In fact, symbolically, word, pulpit, table, sacrament. They're right up here together, word and sacrament. We preach the word and it informs the sacrament. And in both places, God connects with his people. This is very important for us. And it's regular participation, even going through the motions. One of the risks is that worship can become rote. You do the same thing over and over again. You get on auto, autopilot and just say the words. That's not always bad. Autopilot is really a good thing for you. When you drove your car here, you did not have to think, push the right pedal to go forward, push the middle one to slow down. If you did, you were a danger to the road. <laughs> Some things need to be internalized to work like they should. And by going through the pattern of worship, we are being formed in a way that makes it instinctive to, let's say, confess our sins before we draw near to God. We regularly do that on a week-by-week basis, to pray for the church and for the world and to expect God to nourish us and remind us who we are at his table, and for us to participate in something going back even before our days. This isn't just a remembrance. It's a mystical experience in something that, has, that, that, is, that transcends time. This is, this is something we can't fully understand. It's mystery. When I first got here, um, my predecessor, John, I was the assistant, um, it, like even today, I can never remember which kids are receiving communion and which ones are just getting the blessing. Um, and my kids were probably f- about five years old when we got here. And thus far, because of, in part because of the seminary and all the transition that had happened, we hadn't been letting them take communion. They were baptized, but we hadn't been letting them participate, and they were coming up and getting a blessing. And John got frustrated because he could never remember that, and he'd try to serve them communion, and then we'd, be, you know, the, we'd do the dance. No, it's just a blessing. And he said to me, why, why aren't your kids taking communion? And I said, well, I just don't want them to participate until they fully understand the sacrament. And the minute I said it, I was cut through the heart. I was like, oh, I don't fully understand this either. We're in the realm of mystery. Couple, it was Lent. A couple weeks later, it was Easter. And I said, okay, all right, they're going to start taking communion on Easter. And we explained to them what it was. You know, I guess I thought it was like snack time. They'd think it was snack time. But in reality, Nobody wants an, uh, a, a somewhat flavorless flat wafer and some port wine kneeling in church with the intergenerational. It's not snack time, and that's obvious. But it doesn't take someone being very old to recognize they belong or they're rejected. They experience something there. And so participation is so important in the formation of us. 
Christ our Passover, is sacrifice for us. That language is, the prayer book does have an unpoetic, awkward option. If you want to be like really dogmatic about it, you can say Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us once for all upon the cross. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. It's so awkward to say it. It's cumbersome. It doesn't flow right. And it doesn't pick up the mystery of the timelessness of this table. When we say Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, we mean is in the ongoing state of having been sacrificed for us. Something back there happened and the effects are carrying forward. In fact, something back there happened that went backwards to the Passover and goes forward to the consummation of Christ. We're in the middle of this thing in a mystery. It's bigger than us. It's powerful. I am, by the way, this morning, adding that part back into our liturgy. And I'll tell you, when the 2019 Book of Common Prayer came out, the rubrics, the little rules said, the celebrant may, and just for the sake of time, if it said may, I didn't do it. Because we have three services, we've got a schedule. But there are some parts I think I, I really want us to bring back, and this is one of them. And since we're preaching on the Passover this morning, it seems fitting to add it back in and keep it in there. But this is more than just a remembrance. Even in the Passover, in uh, chapter 12, verse 42, it says, um, at the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that this night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all people of Israel throughout their generations. Not a mere memorial. A watching for the Lord's presence in the Passover feast. Paying attention to the kingdom being made available right here. In fact, the Mishnah, one of the commentaries on the Jewish practice said this. If uh, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. That's the idea of being part of something that predates you. The Jewish man and women and kids were supposed to think, I'm actually someone that was in Egypt and God has brought me out in this Passover. It's bigger than one time place. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing where we, you can almost feel it. And there are times, I would say, when it's easier to do that. On Christmas Eve, for instance, we, we light the candle and sing Silent Night, and it's like, when we sing even this night Christ was born, like as if it's happening right now. Or Tenebrae, it gets dark, and we're like, we're there at the cross. We're there in, on Calvary, experiencing it in a new way. I'm not saying we're in any way um, killing Christ on this table. That is not what we're doing. But we are participating in something that happened back there that has ongoing effects and is part of something so much bigger. And this is part of a heavenly banquet where those that have gone before us are in glory with God, feasting. We talk about angels and archangels. And the table here connects us with those that have gone before us. And there's great comfort in that and the hope of the resurrection of what is to come. So what was, what is, and what will be. The mystery of the faith, right? We say it in the liturgy. All of this is present. This table tells you who you are in Christ. It does require repentance, which is why we confess our sins, because it's holy communion. And I like to say heaven and earth, the separation is very thin right here at this rail. God reveals himself in the breaking of bread. That happened in the resurrection on, on the road to Emmaus. In the breaking of bread, their eyes were open and they realized Jesus was there. That was him. So I want you to receive it as a gift from God. It's not meant to divide Christians, but rather to unite us. It's meant to nourish and encourage. And I'm saddened that so much division has happened because of the sacraments, which were Jesus's gift to his church to form us and shape us into a, peace, a people. So 
we're transformed by the renewing of our minds and our bodies become involved in worship as a living sacrifice. So as you draw near, remember Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us and come and meet with him. Keep watch for his presence here. Expect more, not less, because there's a real mystery here that we are invited to be a part of. So would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you've given the sacraments to your church. We do need to be shaped and formed, all of us. And I thank you for the way that both Jewish and Christian worship does that and has for centuries. That, Lord, you are shaping us into a people with whom you dwell. This is a gift. It is so precious. Help us to cherish it, please. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.